Coming to you from Vreda House Studios in extremely hot Pasadena, California, this is Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. we looked at the beginning of what many scholars call the mission discourse in chapter 10. That nomenclature for this part of Matthew, however, reflects the belief that what is being described in this chapter is a religious campaign to make converts to a new religion. As I have repeatedly been arguing in this podcast series, however, religion is a poor category to describe anything in the ancient world because religion did not have its own sphere, but rather what we call religion today was a worldview that permeated all of life and society. A better description of the campaign that Jesus undertakes in the Gospel of Matthew is that of a nonviolent war waged through healing and verbal proclamation against the old society and its systems of domination. These nonviolent weapons of war healing, and verbal proclamation are used to build a new society in the shell of the old. As the story unfolds, we will see that the new society is built through networks of local communities that practice a sharing economy and a democratization of authority. The part of the story that we are exploring currently, chapter 10, describes the effort to establish this network of communities. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 24 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. We saw in the last episode that Jesus in chapter 10 is sending out his disciples as organizers to spread the message of the new society, or kingdom of heaven, and enact signs of its coming through healing and casting out demons. As they go, they rely on the hospitality of the people staying in homes while they do their work in the towns and the villages. In this way, they are setting up a network of local communities that will form the basis of the new society. But Jesus warns them that their work will encounter a lot of resistance, and it will be very dangerous. Now, a brief note of explanation before we proceed. A lot of the language in our text, as previously but even more now, will seem very strange and odd, partly because translators have used religious language to translate it, but also because it alludes to other texts that we are not familiar with and uses phrases from a literary and social context that we are also not familiar with. 
You may have noticed that I'm tending to break up passages into smaller and smaller bits in recent episodes. Well, I'm going to do that even more in this episode, because the language in this chapter is difficult to unpack without frequent reference to context. We're going to look at the rest of the chapter in even smaller portions. Let's begin with the first half of verse 16. Matthew 10, 16, Jesus says, See, I'm sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves. This image of wolves or other wild animals is a familiar image in ancient Israelite literature symbolizing the oppressive foreign powers who prey on the people of Israel. Jesus sends out his disciple organizers to do their work in a hostile landscape. Israel suffers under a brutal Roman occupation, and Rome's spies and informants are everywhere, ready to alert the authorities who will pounce like wolves on these revolutionary organizers. Jesus continues in the second half of the verse, So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. This is the sort of advice that one would expect in the situation that they are in. They need to be smart about their movements, but they are to remain innocent, or in other words, nonviolent. But the word wise may mean more than just sneaky and crafty although its pairing with the word serpent indicates that it does have that meaning as well. The use of the word wise here may point to something more profound in the thematic symbolism of this story. In Matthew, Jesus is portrayed as the embodiment of wisdom. We will see more of that in chapter 11. And he will train his disciples in the wisdom of the new society. That will be the theme in chapter 13. They are to be a nonviolent army of wisdom envoys, evading the authorities and spreading the countercultural wisdom of the new society, wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus continues in verses 17 and 18. Beware of them, for they will hand you over to councils and flog you in their synagogues and you will be dragged before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them and the Gentiles. And the Gentiles. These verses show that this is not a religious campaign or a campaign against Israel or Judaism, as some modern Christians have interpreted it, but rather a campaign against all oppressors and oppression everywhere. As I said in the last episode, synagogues in first-century Palestine were not religious gatherings as we think of them today, but rather town gatherings, which is why Jesus speaks of councils and governors and kings at the same time. These are all bodies and people who hold political authority, and the language that he uses indicates Jewish and non-Jewish authorities. Jesus continues in verses 19 and 20. When they hand you over, do not worry about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you at that time, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Public speaking was prized by the elites. The elites were trained in rhetoric and public speaking and had contests to sharpen their skills. 
Naturally, uneducated, illiterate peasants would feel inadequate to speak at any length in the presence of these elites, inadequate to articulate a legal defense, much less to proclaim a message. Here, Jesus assures his peasant disciples that they will be able to speak boldly and prophetically to the elites before whom they are dragged in chains. The elites are powerful patriarchs, the fathers of the society. The empire was built through a pyramid of fathers. Jesus already taught his disciples that they have only one father, the one in heaven, and that they are all brothers and sisters. Here he tells them that their father will give them the words to speak, to challenge the authority of the fathers of society. These peasant organizers need not be intimidated by the patriarchs of the major households who hold the seats in the councils, because a greater patriarch, their father in heaven, will give them words that will proceed from their mouths as a double-edged sword, to use imagery from other parts of the New Testament. These words will expose the sins of their accusers, something that Jesus will come back to later in this speech, and which we will cover in the next episode of this series. For now, Jesus continues in verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. This may sound extreme, but it is what happens in revolutions against oppressive regimes, common people, Friends, even family members, might be informants, turning in even their own friends and family to be put to death. Additionally, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, Jesus' movement will tear apart the very foundation of their society, the patriarchal households. And that tearing apart is what Jesus is describing here. Households headed by a patriarch were the foundation and building blocks of the empire. The empire was constructed through a pyramid of households. These households were conceptualized as existing in larger households of tribes and nations, so that nations were referred to as houses or households. Israel was referred to as a house, and so was the Roman Empire. The emperor was called father and held the position of the grand patriarch of the imperial house of Rome the big daddy at the top of the pyramid. Jesus' movement will tear apart these households and construct a new house, a house of mercy and justice, which is why he later refers to himself as a householder or the master of a house. Let's continue with the first half of verse 22. Jesus states, And you will be hated by all because of my name. Now, I want to address this whole because of my name business. For most modern readers, this phrase on the lips of Jesus proceeds from his divine status or his status as founder of a religious movement. After all, many Christians today conclude their prayers by saying, this we pray in the name of Jesus or in your son's name or some version of that. So this phrase, because of my name, on the lips of Jesus and Matthew, comes across as religious speak, reinforcing the divine status or religious founder status of Jesus. What we tend to forget is 
that whatever divine or religious status Jesus has, and he does have divine status, Matthew is also portraying Jesus as a peasant king. Kings would instruct people to do and say things in their name. So this verbiage, in its original first century setting, needs no more than that as its origin. Jesus is speaking as the wise peasant king. He tells his followers to do things in his name and that they will be hated and persecuted because of his name. Of course, he is the anti-king king, the one who will subvert the kingdoms of this world and establish a new upside-down kingdom where the first are made last and the last are made first. But to effect all of this, he has to speak like a king. That's central to the literary portrayal of Jesus in Matthew. Jesus is the peasant king, the upside-down king, establishing an upside-down kingdom. Let's continue with the second half of verse 22. Jesus says, But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Again, if we are hearing this with a religious frame, it sounds like Jesus is promising heaven to those who don't abandon his new religion. But if we read this text as a rhetorical speech about waging a nonviolent sociopolitical revolution, and we remember that the word translated as saved has a much broader and often more political meaning than is normally understood by modern-day Christians, then it will come out very differently. The word usually translated as saved in English translates a Greek word that is often used in the ancient Greek version of the Hebrew scriptures for saving Israel from oppressive empires or saving the king from political enemies. The sort of wording that Matthew uses here, the one who endures to the end will be saved, is typical of language used in a genre of ancient Jewish resistance literature called apocalyptic. Apocalyptic is a style of writing that often uses end-of-the-world imagery to imagine the defeat of an empire or any unjust system. While Matthew does not employ the apocalyptic style as thoroughly as some other writings of the time, this gospel definitely uses it. We will see more of it later, and we are getting a taste of it here. In fact, very similar verbiage to that used here in Matthew 10.22 is used in another more thoroughly apocalyptic work of Jewish resistance literature from the first century. Fourth Ezra. Fourth Ezra 6, 24-25 reads, At that time, friends shall make war on friends like enemies. And the earth and those who inhabit it shall be terrified. And the springs of the fountains shall stand still, so that for three hours they shall not flow. And it shall be that whoever remains after all that I have foretold you shall himself be saved, and shall see my salvation and the end of my world. Fourth Ezra, like Matthew, uses apocalyptic end-of-the-world imagery to envision the defeat of Rome. The phrase, the one who endures to the end, seems to be stock verbiage used in resistance literature of the time to encourage rebels to continue the struggle. As Jesus' speech proceeds, we will hear this idea more fully develop. So Jesus continues in verse 23. 
When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I tell you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now that sounds like the end of the world, doesn't it? The coming of the Son of Man. This is one of those verses that baffles commentators. What does he mean by saying that the Son of Man will come before his disciple organizers can go through all the towns of Israel? The coming of the Son of Man is commonly thought to refer to the second coming of Christ. So some commentators assume that Jesus is saying that he will be coming again very soon, before his disciple organizers have time to go through all the towns of Israel. That would be very strange if that is what he is saying because the author of this gospel is writing it approximately 50 years after the story takes place, more than enough time for this initial mission to all the towns of Israel to be completed. And of course, Jesus has not yet returned. So there must be another meaning. The coming of the Son of Man is an image from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, of the victory of the people of Israel over the empires that have oppressed it. I've covered this in previous episodes and will likely do so again, but I won't unpack Daniel 7 now. I will be arguing in later episodes, as Jesus continues to talk about the coming of the Son of Man, that he is referring primarily to the crucifixion, to his crucifixion, as well as the martyrdom of all who follow in his footsteps. Jesus will increasingly give us signals that the coming of the Son of Man, in other words, the victory over the empire, begins at his crucifixion and continues through the self-sacrificing work and witness of the counterculture communities of the movement. It is through the crucifixion, the martyrdom of Jesus, and the willingness of his followers to be martyred, if need be, that the power of the empire and all oppressive power structures will be broken. The cross is the end of the old society, the coming of the Son of Man. He is saying that the empire will be defeated long before it falls. They will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the power of the empire is broken in the crucifixion. I will, in later episodes, as we come to these literary clues, explain how the coming of the Son of Man begins with the crucifixion. But we are out of time for now. In the next episode, we will explore the rest of Jesus' speech in chapter 10. My name is Bert Newton. The music for this series is provided by David Martin and Bob Nolte. Please spread the word about our podcast. This podcast is hosted at Buzzsprout, but can be found on most major podcast platforms. This has been episode 24 of Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Uh-huh.